It's good to be with you again. Thank you for having me. It's been, um, it's been good, at least for me, to be able to work through First Timothy uh, with you all. So today, um, the passage uh, for the message comes from First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And it's uh, found on page 991 of the uh, Blue Pew Bible. Let me read this on our behalf. The Apostle Paul is speaking. He says, I desire then, excuse me, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. But what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. <clears throat> well, <laughs> So, um, <laughs> so I um, thought this would be an interesting passage to work through, and um, I did an interesting Google search. I um, wanted to see uh, who preached on this passage, and so I looked up some popular preachers, so you can guess some of their names, and I could not find a single sermon on this passage. And that's usually, um, it's a sign. I don't know what it means, but (laughs) it's a sign that for whatever reason, and I think we can understand why, uh, this passage is not very popular to preach on. So I I can make a wager with you that you will never attend a conference, at least a big popular conference where this is going to be like the key passage, okay? So, and um, from a scholastic perspective, there is so much ink spilled on what exactly is going on here. And so I think it's very tempting to just move on to greener pastures and just like skip over this. But I I think this is actually a really great passage. This is a really great passage. And um, without getting into the weeds of things, if I can suggest to you a helpful takeaway, which I wanna say again and again, I have become so convicted of more and more with every year, and it's this, right? And I hope that children, you can be encouraged by this as well, because I think in one sense it's harder for you than for me and your parents' generation, because um, when I was growing up, the only people that my parents could compare me to were either my siblings or the other kids at church. But now you have the entire internet, okay, and that's a lot of pressure when you read about 30-year-olds that have become millionaires, and you feel like, I don't even have a job yet, right? So it's very easy to feel overwhelmed. But I want to suggest to you that um, it's okay to live what appears to be an ordinary life, what appears to be an ordinary life. And what I mean by that is simply to do what God has commanded us to do and see what God, how God takes the ordinary and accomplishes the extraordinary. I think this is one of, you see, like this passage, there are a lot of reasons why people don't like this passage. But in a lot of ways, it seems too ordinary. Like it seems like um, 
like, that's it. But I want to suggest to you again that like, um, there's so much to be said um, of living an ordinary life. I think one of the best movie examples of this is uh, some of you may be familiar with the movie Forrest Gump. And in Forrest Gump, you have this individual who is not innately gifted. He's not inherently smart, you might say. And yet he accomplishes so many extraordinary things throughout his life. Now, granted, it's fictitious. But I think, in my estimation, the most touching part of this movie is when he is sitting next to his uh, dying mother and they're talking about what's the purpose of life. And then she says, you know what my purpose was, Forrest? She said, I believe my purpose was to be your mother, right? Think about that statement today, how that wouldn't seem extraordinary. And yet, in that movie, because his mother was just faithful to her son, right, and aspired to care for him, love him, and nurture him, how in that ordinary act, in the end, he was able to do extraordinary things. And so in a lot of ways, this passage is a summons for men in the context of believers to be men and women to be women. It's that simple, but I just want to suggest to you that it's more extraordinary than you think. Um, I'm struck by this. <clears throat> I'm always struck by this. So I have spoken at a few men's conference, and um, this is just a, as a footnote, but there's all the data I continue to collect on this. So this is the irony I experience at a lot of men's conference. See, a lot of these men's conference, by the way, I've noticed most of the speakers, they don't talk normally at men's conference. It's always like, Hey guys, it's really like raspy. And then I go up there and I'm like, hey guys. Like, but it's always like, hey guys. And so even recently, uh, I was at this men's conference and it's like, hey guys, listen, God wants us to you know, conquer the world. And it's always extraordinary, right? And when it's my turn, I, I always say, well, you know, I, um, I think God wants us to be good husbands and fathers, right? And, but you know what I think is so striking about these conferences? Even as we're talking about um, like doing extraordinary things, when you sit down with most of these men, you know what they all wish for? They all wish that they had had better relationships with their fathers. And they say this. Literally, they say this. Like, I've now traveled a lot. And they, and they say, um, I just wish that, like, we had had a relationship. And I wonder where I would be today, right? And so I just want to suggest as we look at this passage Maybe what we need is like some detox from like this culture of like we have to be extraordinary. We have to be radical. We have to start the next Facebook. You know, and instead, maybe if our focus is not even on success, <clears throat> but on stewarding the life that God has given us, maybe God will take that as we trust in him and really do the extraordinary. So I think that's actually really helpful as we look at this passage. Now, and so that's the main takeaway, and we're going to parse that out. Now, it is true this passage is difficult, so I want to suggest to you three, guide, um, three points to guide our discussion. The first one is this. When Paul makes uh, this co these comments, I believe that he's not speaking just merely to an individual. I talked about this last week, uh, or a few weeks ago, how First Timothy is not like an individual-like letter. It's not as if Paul had, you know, if you imagine this, written this letter, 
It's being delivered to Timothy. Uh, there's like a candle lit in his room. He unfolds it, and it's like, dear Timothy. It's not like that. It's more likely, as your pastor just read Genesis, that's probably how it was read. Um, and so I think that this, again, to set the stage, is not merely a personal letter between um, Paul and Timothy, but it's also addressed to the church. And I believe, and a lot of scholars do agree with this, that Paul is talking about how believers should behave or conduct themselves when they gather together. The reason why that's very important is, for instance, when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man, the wrong way to apply this is to suppose, huh, well, I am a man of the Bible, and I do have a boss at work who's a female, so out of reverence for the word of God, I won't like submit to her. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. This is not prescribing some general principle about how men and women are to uh, interact in society, right? We want to be careful not to go beyond the Bible. This is talking specifically about how believers should conduct themselves when they gather together for worship. And there are some contextual clues for that. I consider this for a moment. Did you notice when, when Paul says, you know, I want uh, men when they gather together to lift holy hands without argu- arguing? When does that happen when you are by yourself? Does that make sense? When it, it Maybe for some of you, you might say, well, when I'm by myself, I do like pray lifting my hands, right? But when is the last time you were by yourself and you had an argument? Right? Well, maybe, but you get the idea, right? And so you can tell that he's talking about some situation when believers gather together. Or even when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach, but rather she is to learn in silence, and we'll get to that. It's assuming some sort of um, dynamic interaction. So I think that context is very important to keep in mind. Now, Paul is talking specifically about how believers are to conduct themselves when they gather together to worship, right? And again, when we interpret the Bible, we don't want to go beyond the Bible. We, we don't want to stretch it where we are actually teaching what the Bible doesn't. And so again, I think that's super helpful to keep in mind. Paul is addressing, again, for the sake of clarity, how believers should conduct themselves when they gather together for worship. And I I would say probably for regular Sunday worship. You know, there are now complicated questions that come up. Uh, Does this apply to Wednesday evenings? Does this apply to Bible study? And that's where you have a good session to work this out. But at least in this passage, Paul is talking about how believers should act when they gather together. And this makes sense, because remember, the main point of this entire series is authority and piety in God's family. But authority assumes a structure. Authority assumes organization. And one of the problems Paul has with the false teachers is that they're being disruptive, especially when um, believers gather together. So this is the thing that Paul cares about, that there is a proper way for believers to conduct themselves uh, when they gather together. And if I can read explicitly, uh, in chapter 3, verse eight, uh, 15, this is what Paul says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward. Now, before we move on to the tough stuff, um, not that that wasn't tough, this is one thing to keep in mind. <clears throat> I know this sounds like a basic point, but this is really important to keep in mind because we can so easily draw in our, we, we can so easily bring in our own ideas. Remember, the church is God's church. It's God's church. 
And that means that we're not free to do whatever we want with the church. Does that make sense? And this is why last week I brought out this point when Paul declared in like the verse right before, he says, I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and a teacher. He's, not, he's saying, I'm not one of many opinions. This is such an important point. He's not saying, well, you know, what do you think? What do you think? What do I think? He's saying, I am God's unique agent in history, both to proclaim the gospel and also to explain what the gospel means. And therefore, when Paul says in verse 8, I desire then that, 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 he's not saying, well, you know, this is my opinion. He's saying, as God's authorized apostle, this is how you should act in the household of God. And that is a message that we are not very comfortable with because every culture has this temptation. We want to make the church whatever we want you know, the church to be. One of the um, issues um, when I was growing up in New York City, <clears throat> uh, this was one of the issues that the Korean American church faced. So um, first-generation Koreans, they didn't want um, their children to lose the language. It was one of the main um, uh, preoccupations they had. And so in many Korean churches, this is obviously where many Koreans would gather together, they wanted um, a Korean school to be an integral part of the church. This is, this is a big thing, right? And they even, they even argued if we do this, like, our church will grow, right? So, I mean, I guess means to an end, but, but you see, what would happen is that some members would begin to say, and if you don't offer a Korean school, we're going to go to a church that does offer a Korean school. You see, that's a great example of it's not bad for a church to offer service, but it's another thing to say, a church must do this, or a church must be like that, especially if it just reflects my own preference or opinion. The church is what God has designed it to be. And how do we know what God wants the church to be? It goes back to you know, listening to the apostles and submitting to them out of reverence for Jesus, right? And so I grant here, as we listen to the next part, whether you're a man or a woman, I don't think anyone's going to hear the, what the Apostle Paul says. says. Yes, this is great. I love it. I absolutely want to do it, right? But remember, the basic question is, do I believe Paul was whom he claimed to be? Do I believe that he was God's authoritative agent to tell believers, right, how men and women should conduct themselves in the church? And this is, you see, it's a different way of approaching church. It's submitting to God's revelation as he has spoken to us through his apostles. So that's one. So we're talking about corporate setting. So having said that, let's first begin with the men, right? And he suggests at least three things that men should do, right? The first one is this. In chapter two earlier, he he says in almost a general way, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Notice he uses like the passive voice here. So obviously, all believers should pray. But then in verse 8, he specifies men, you might say, as the subject. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch, right, to say, number one, men are called to lead the household of God in prayer, in prayer, right? And here, like, um, 
just want to ask a basic question. I do a lot of marriage counseling, and um, one of the questions I ask a lot is, um, I ask, do you pray together as a couple? Everyone gets very quiet. They're like, well, we pray, but um, not too much as a couple. And, and I understand as a married man, especially if you haven't, it can be a little bit like awkward or different. But here, what Paul is saying is that the men should take the lead in uh, creating a household and a church that is marked by prayer for a lot of different reasons. And yet, as you probably know um, in your experience with many churches, more often than not, whenever there are prayer meetings, the ratio of men to women is very, very telling. So that's number one. He says men should take the lead in praying. Sounds simple enough. But number two, this is what men should do. He, he goes on to say, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What should men do? They should take the lead. They should take the initiative in establishing peace among believers. Okay, peace among believers. Now, um, this is very hard for men to do. This is why. Um, I don't want to overgeneralize here, but in a lot of ways, this is how men work. Uh, when we have differences, we play basketball. And, um, we, you know, we have a rough game. We, like, let out some aggression. Uh, someone that's been annoying you, like, elbow them in the face. <laughs> but then after you walk off the court, you're fine. That's in a lot of ways that are, like... We don't particularly, as again, I don't mean to overgeneralize, but we don't like to talk it through too much, right? Even like the other week, um, I was counseling this couple, and I was like, what's, what's wrong? And she said, well, my, when my husband gets back from work, and clearly he's had some sort of conflict, right, with a colleague. So I asked him, honey, you want to talk about it? Most men are like, I'm fine. They, they don't want to talk about it, Right. And so if that's true for them, in many situations, right, making peace is very difficult. It takes a lot of work. And let me add this layer. You notice how Paul says in every place? And so Paul knew this in his ministry. What's going on with many churches is that um, Jews and Gentiles are are intermingling. What that means, if I can use contemporary language, is this the church is becoming very diverse. And friends, let me tell you this. Okay, I totally believe that the church should be diverse. Absolutely. But anyone that says diversity is a beautiful and wonderful thing clearly does not have a diverse church. (laughs) Let me tell you why. Well, you know, I'm overstating it, but you get that. Diversity is right, but it is really, really difficult really, really difficult because, right, um, if I can give a personal example, I always, there was this church I would speak at regularly, a very large Caucasian church, and they have the sweetest um, elderly ladies I've ever met, but without fail, at least in the first two years, I would always have one elderly woman come up to me after the message and say, my God, son, your English is very good. <laughs> so I would stand there thinking, well, my Korean is not very good. <laughs> so thank God my English is passable. And, um, and so, and yeah, these things, differences come up. And what I'm getting at is that, you know, that's more of a facetious example. But as you draw different cultures together, 
Oh, man. I think it's really hard. Uh, during the past two, three years at our church, our church is getting more diverse. Uh, this is what's going on at our church. <laughs> so our church is really unique. 50% Democrat, 50% Republican, 50% liberal, 50% conservative. So basically all the liberals at my church think I'm super conservative. All the conservatives think I'm super liberal. <laughs> and no one is happy. And so it's really, no, it's really, really difficult where when, um, you know, different ha- things happen in the news, someone is always happy, I mean, unhappy that I did not say something. And someone is always unhappy that I did say something. And that's why, as the church reflects what Jesus has done, you know, like we say, oh, Jesus is bringing every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. Isn't it a beautiful thing? Yes, but not really. It's really helpful when everyone just wants pepperoni pizza. That's helpful. It's different when everyone wants something different. And that's why in this context, do you see how that context makes, really brings out this um, like exhortation more, where Paul says, I desire that the men, you are very proactive about promoting peace. That's not something men, we naturally want to muddy ourselves in, right? But he's saying, as the church grows, right, it takes that much more work to establish a culture of peace. That's that's an amazing thing. And then the third thing is this. The third thing men are called to do is they are called to take the lead in teaching. Because as we've said in, um, in at least 1 Timothy, teaching represents authority. It means that, you know, and the way God has established the household, in no universe does the Bible ever say uh, men are superior to women. Not at all. Uh, you know, men and women, equal in, dignity, uh, equal in dignity, inherent in worth, absolutely, but different in function. And, you know, I've always read this verse a little bit differently. This is one of the most controversial uh, verses. But you see verse 13 and 14? I actually think the reading is very straightforward. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, do you really think that Paul is, like, giving some Bible trivia right now? Like, you know, the kids, okay, who was formed first, Adam or Eve? Oh, Adam. No, obviously not. That's not what Paul is getting at. So when, when Paul says Adam was formed first, what's he getting at? He's using the same language as chapter 1 when he says, I am the first or the foremost of sinners. What Paul is getting at is not that Adam is superior, but within the household of God, God had established him to be first. That is to have authority in the family, and so to, you know, eldership. But let's go on. And then verse 14, this is what Paul is saying. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the way a lot of people have read this is in a very ontological way. And so um, many scholars have said, you see, this is the problem with the Apostle Paul. He thought lowly of women. And what he's saying here is that women are so gullible, right? And look, woman, she was the transgressor. But anyone that has lived life, who is more gullible, men or women? (laughs) So, like, it's definitely not that. And I think that this is actually an indictment against men. Look, look, Look at verse 14 one more time. Adam was not deceived, meaning he knew that the serpent was wrong. You see that? It's like this. 
I have two boys. They're two years apart. One day, when they were very young, I discovered them in the pantry, okay? And they were, they had lots of Oreos everywhere, okay? <laughs> so I said, oh my goodness, all right? I said, did I not say you guys were not allowed to have cookies? And the younger one was like, Daddy, I thought you meant chocolate chip cookies, right? And the older one was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, okay, you guys are both in big trouble. But I said to the older one, you're in really big trouble. Because the younger one genuinely did not know. He's, he's very like, he's just like, I just, I just thought you meant chocolate chip cookies. But the older one, I said, you knew, didn't you? Right? He goes, yeah, I did. And so even though you knew, you still disobeyed. He goes, yes. You see, when you read verse 14 and says Adam was not deceived and yet he still sinned, oh, like that's the problem. That he abdicated his call to lead and protect his wife. See, that, it's like, wait, you knew that by eating the forbidden fruit, Eve at least would be condemned? You knew? And you did nothing as a husband? You see, that, that, that's a great example of what? Passivity, an abdication to lead, right, by speaking the truth and saying, no, God did say if we eat this, we're in big trouble. And that's why I think the third thing is this. Men are called to lead, particularly in preserving and promoting the truth of God, right? And this is what many men say. They say, well, that's just not my thing. You know, I'm not, I, I, I'm not good at teaching or like, you know, I, I can maybe teach my boy how to throw baseball, but that's not my thing, right? And you see, by arguing in that way, you're making the same mistake that a lot of liberals make about this passage because they argue that, you know who should teach? People should teach on the basis of solely ability. That's, that's actually not the case. Here, we are called to lead because we are called to lead, we have a position that we have to fulfill. And I want to just encourage the men in this way. I would not be too discouraged if you're like, well, you know, I just, um, like, I wouldn't be too intimidated. Although, I do understand why at your church you might be a little intimidated. You do have, <laughs> you do have certain uh, forces of uh, theological nature. But, you, all right. but having said that, right, I would not be too concerned. This is why. You know what children... They don't actually need the best teacher in the world, but they need to know what your heart is passionate about. They do. And if I can give you just one more immigrant example. You know, I'm second-generation immigrant, and my parents obviously did not speak English well. So when they would try to teach me English, it was literally the blind leading the blind. It was pretty bad. I'm like... That's not what my school teacher said. But it, it was a really blind leading the blind. But you know why it worked? Whatever ability they had or didn't have, you could tell that this was really important to them. You see, men, right, what happened in the Garden of Eve is ultimately not a failure on the part of women. It was a failure on the part of men that we had abdicated our call to lead, especially by preserving and promoting the word of God. And so that's what Paul says here. And this is, again, the overall um, challenge I want to give to you. It's this. Whether something feels natural to you, right, as men, to lead 
the church in prayer, to facilitate a culture of peace, to be the main teachers, right, to promote and to preserve and promote, whether that comes naturally, is secondary to obeying God as he has revealed himself through the Apostle Paul. See? By the way, one of my mentors shared this with me. This may be helpful. This may not be. I have found it very helpful. If it's not, please disregard. But he has given me this really helpful rule in life. He said, Paul, in most situations, I think about what I naturally want to do, and I do the opposite. I've thought about, is that simply another way of saying dying to yourself and living for Jesus? Where men, again, you may feel like, again, I don't naturally... I don't want to pray because my prayers are not eloquent. I, I don't want to get involved like, oh, that's messy. I don't like getting involved with messiness. Or, you know, I, I don't want to teach or whatever. Whatever you want is secondary to our desire to what? Glorify and honor God in all of our lives. And this is what the Bible has said. When believers gather together, this is what men should do, right? And I hope that you would take that to heart. Now, having said that to the men, this is what... Paul, the apostle, not Paul John, says, okay, just keep in mind, I'm just the messenger. I always want to underscore this. He says at least three things. And again, we're talking about a liturgical context. This isn't to say that there, are no, there aren't, aren't any personal applications, but three things very quickly. <clears throat> One, Paul says that women should be particularly uh, just thoughtful about their attire. Just, there's no way to circumvent it. Paul says, likewise, I want the woman to adorn themselves in respectable apparel, clothes, modesty, self-control, uh, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire, but w- what, with what is proper for women. Now, again, I, the reason why I underscored, so does this mean you can never braid your hair? Does this mean you can never like wear costly attire? Like, God forbid, at a wedding. Yeah, of course. We're talking about a in the context especially of when believers gather together, right? Some scholars do think that the description here, when it says braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire, um, that Paul is referring to women of the city. So I, I think you know what I mean by that. And he's saying we should dress in a way that's very thoughtful, particularly when believers gather together. And, you know, like, not to dwell on it too much, I think that is actually a very helpful rule of thumb, right? Just to dress with wisdom, right? And whatever that might mean. So that's number one. Second thing is this. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, right? I'm sorry, verse 11. Let's first read uh, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I wish Paul had just stopped there. Do you know why? It's ambiguous enough where we have been like, let's ask Paul when we're in heaven. Move on. <laughs> Unfortunately, he says, all right, let me clarify, <laughs> okay? So after saying, let a woman learn quietly, we all submit. And then he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Again, we're, talk- we're talking about a liturgical context. And this is a point that I have reiterated throughout this series that for Paul, having authority and teaching are two sides of the same coin. Do you remember chapter 1? The whole thing about the false teachers is Paul, was, Paul wasn't just saying, hey, their teaching is bad. He was saying they don't have authority in the family of God. See, this is a very important point. And so when, I get, when women tend to read this passage, they're like, oh, wait, so are you saying like, uh, women can't be teachers? They can't be seminary? Pro-? No, absolutely not. 
I think what Paul is saying here is actually pretty clear. He's saying here that when believers gather together, right, preachers should be men. Now, this is a really, really, really hard teaching, really, really hard teaching. And I teach this at seminary, and every year I get asked this question. Um, A student raises his hand and begins in this way. He says, Dr. John, it's always very forceful. Dr. John, uh, my dad's a pastor, and I know where this is going. And my mom's a pastor. And they've been faithful pastors for 30, 40 years, right? And they have sacrificed so much. So are you saying, are you saying that my mom has been living in disobedience for 30, 40 years? And usually I'm like, ah, I think it's time to take a break. <laughs> but it's a very hard question where I'm like, um, well, listen, I think that we have all struggled with different things for many different years. And I don't want to overstate this. All I'm saying is that in this passage, like, what do you make of this passage? That's usually what I say. How do you read this passage? And the reason why I try to draw their attention to this passage is this. The reason why I think this topic is important, I think it was D.A. Carson and Tim Keller. They were asked a really interesting question, and it went along these lines. They, they were asked, would you attend a church where women are the preachers? So they were asked that question. Their response was basically the same response I give to most of my students. They basically said this. It's not so much the question of whether like women are preachers. That's actually, in one sense, a secondary concern. My question has more to do with how they read their Bible. Does everyone understand that? Because admittedly, for a lot of different reasons, we don't have time to get into it right now. This, this is a hard passage. But you know what? There are a lot of hard passages in the Bible. So what are you going to do whenever, whenever you come across a hard passage? And so they were saying what's, what's a more pressing issue here, right, is not whether you have female preachers, but whether you can read your Bible and, and this is the more important thing, whether you're willing to submit to the Word of God. See, friends, like, one of the most helpful principles in life is this. This is such a helpful principle. Submission is not agreement. Does that make sense? Like, it's not. When you say, okay, fine, I'll submit to you. Let's go to Hawaii. I submit to you, right? You're not, you're not submitting. You are gladly agreeing, right? Submission assumes some level of disagreement, dislike. And yet, because of the one who has commanded it or taught it, you, you submit. And I think that's a very helpful answer here where I personally don't think this passage is as as complicated as people suppose in terms of what Paul is saying. I I don't think so. What's hard is swallowing the pill. Does that make sense? And so that's a great answer. And so the second thing that Paul is basically saying is he's not even saying, hey, women, when, you know, we all gather together for worship, like, shh, shh, shh. No, he's not saying that. He's saying try to maintain order in the household of God. Let men be what men are called to be, 
and let women do what women are called to do because they're called to do a lot and without their service the church cannot be healthy right but that's the second point that paul is really getting at he's saying women in particular do your best not to be disruptive like the false teachers but instead try to maintain order in god's household especially when we worship so that's the second thing and the last thing is this he says and this is what i want men to do i mean women to do he says i want women to really um in verse 10 he says what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works and then i mean i do admit something in heaven i might suggest to paul i think you could have written this passage a little better but having said that in verse 15 he goes on to say yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control and so this is a hard passage because uh, when paul mentions childbearing as a pastor, I get asked these two questions. What if I'm a single woman and I cannot bear a child? What does this mean? Does this mean I cannot be saved? Or to be honest, there are couples, in our church there have been many, who uh, struggle with infertility. So some will ask, wait, so is Paul, what Paul is saying is that if you are a woman, you must bear children? No, that's not what he's saying. But I think that what he's getting at is this. He's talking about what is the one thing I, there are probably a few others, but what is the one thing women can do that men absolutely cannot? It, it is what? They can bear children. And I think the reason why he uses this is, is he's saying that there are certain things that women are called to do uniquely and wonderfully. And he's saying, you know, women, just like men are called to do A, B, and C, right? And especially in the context of church, so too women should do A, B, and C. Do what is uniquely wonderful what God has uniquely uh, gifted you to do, right? And so that's what he says to women, those three things. Number one, just be purposeful about your attire. Seems rather um, normal, but try it out. <laughs> Number two, it says maintain order and peace in the household of God. But number three, pursue those particular good works that women alone can uniquely and wonderfully do, right? And it's this. <clears throat> I, w I just want to take a moment to encourage uh, many of the women in this room, particularly, particularly